Praise the Lord. Last week, we, we taught on and learned about being perfect and the lack thereof. And I titled last Sunday, Sunday School for Imperfect People, which was good because that's most of us. So this morning, I, with what God has given me, I've come up with a very, very imaginative title, Sunday School for Imperfect People, Part 2. Because there's more to it than just what we went through last week. And so our opening text from last week will still be the same for this week. Psalm chapter 138 and verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. Will perfect, meaning not perfect right now. Exactly how we started off last week. And in fact, last week we found out that not only were we imperfect in this sense that we do make mistakes, sometimes over and over, but we also found out that we are imperfect in the sense that we are not complete. Doesn't that feel great? Thanks. But it's so very true. It, it really is, if we're honest with ourselves, it's so very true that we look at ourselves and we can say, yeah, that thing looking in the mirror back at me is not perfect. It's not complete. You know, whenever I was a kid, in fact, somewhere there still exists a recording of about five-year-old me singing, he's still working on me. You know, and now I'm 41 and he's still working on me. You know, and, and, and every time that Uncle Elon was in the platform, you know, and in the pulpit and he was preaching, he would still admit he's still working on me. So it's a never-ending process. And so personally, I know that I make more mistakes than even I care to admit to myself. And the more that I learn about God, the more that I realize that I was never meant to be able to handle all of life all on my own. So all of us, we're all just that imperfect people. Yet last Sunday, we learned that that's precisely the fact that makes what God does in us so very incredible in that he takes the imperfect and he uses that for his glory. Because you go through, if you go through Hebrews 11, you start looking at the faith chapter and everybody that it names, you know, these great pillars of faith, every single one of them were people with faults and with failures. They were selfish. Some of them were liars. Some of them were cowardly. Some of them were drunks. Some of them were whatever list of vices you want to name those people had them and yet they're in Hebrews 11 as pillars of the faith because they didn't stop at the mistake they let God keep working on them and so we alone might be little or nothing but together we are the body of Christ we are a magnificent masterpiece crafted by the master's hand 
So then, are we all good? We just coast through life that way? No. No. We realize that we're imperfect, and that is only the first step on another journey. So circling back to our opening text and looking for other verses just like it, and you'll find that imperfect is not a condition in the Word of God that we are allowed to wear and to stay there. God is in the process of perfecting us. That's what Psalms 138 and verse 8 says. He will perfect, meaning I'm not perfect now, but He is working on me. He will go through the process and He will get me there. So that means we don't get to lie in our puddle of imperfection. We just talked about that this morning. I had it in my notes. We don't get to lie in our puddle of imperfect messiness and just splash around in it or take mud and throw on somebody else. We, we don't get to do that. God expects us to grow whenever he feeds us and he waters us. So what does that really mean? In just the same way that perfect and perfect had more than one meaning, the explanation of growth that God has for us also has more than one meaning. It does, in fact, mean that he helps us to make fewer mistakes. And it also means that he helps us to become more complete. So we're going to look at both of those aspects this morning. First, the fewer mistakes parts. Because when it comes to our perfecting and our becoming perfect, we often take, I think, the, the wrong perspective. We touched briefly on it last week about how being imperfect meant we made a lot of mistakes, and we do, and it's the major reason that we need him. But many times we take that fact as license to not try harder and strive towards being perfect. We feel like, okay, I made a mistake. All right, I made a mistake. God will forgive me. I'll pray and, and I'll try not to, but if I do fail again, I'll just pray again and God will forgive me. And, and that's absolutely true. God is ready and willing to forgive us, but if that is our mindset, we can only grow so far with that kind of attitude before it really begins to restrict our spiritual maturity. Knowing that we are not perfect, people didn't dissuade the Lord from calling us to more. Brother Bruce has been teaching a series on Wednesday nights on holiness from his perspective. And it's been tremendous. If you haven't been here, you need to go back on the Wednesday night services on the Facebook page and, and listen to them because they, they are tremendous. But our key text every night has been 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. And so in this discussion, God has just as much of an emphasis to put on our process of growth and perfection. Matthew chapter 5 starts with the Beatitudes, what we label as the Beatitudes, and then continues through Matthew chapters 6 and 7. It's three chapters worth of red letter of Jesus teaching what we have as the longest sermon that he taught or the longest lesson that he taught. And it's some of the best 
nuggets and details of how to live our lives, how to act, how to think, how to be, and what attitudes to have towards the world. So if you ever need more instruction, if you ever need more review, just go back and reread Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then after you get done, sit there and go, oh. And at the end of chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 and 40, verse 48, Jesus says, this is red letter, Jesus says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Oh my goodness. I, not just be perfect, but be perfect like God. What? Ouch. That, I need help. I, I can't do that. I'm not capable of that but it's red letter it's what Jesus is instructing and that was Jesus's teaching and not just what to one person that was to the whole crowd and it's to us all and our flesh might try to inch away from it and say okay yes but that's just one verse out of context so let's back up a few verses Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 43 Ye have heard it, you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you only love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if you only salute or greet your brethren, what do you do more than other people? Do not even the publicans do so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So yeah, there's no easy way out of that one. Jesus himself calls us to be perfect, to strive for perfection. And it doesn't stop there. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. Yet there's so much to unpack in just those three verses. First, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. Yay, I'm being tempted? Like, no, no, that's not what it means. But rather... We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, the Bible says, There hath no temptation taken you but that which is common to every man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you might be able to bear it. So that means that every time we are tempted is a chance both for God to prove faithful and for you to use your faith to cling to him for the escape 
to be able to get away from the temptation. And that leaning on your faith that he gave you then works patience because sometimes we have to wait for him to work because he doesn't always work on our schedule. You know, Brother Bruce has said over and over and over, we, we live in a microwave society and we've got a crock pot God. You know, sometimes his deliverance for us isn't just push the button and ding, you're done and you're out. Sometimes it's, I've got to stay on my knees for a while. Maybe it's not so much just that there's a temptation and I need to pray against it. Maybe it's that God has allowed a temptation to come so I would get on my knees because he needed me to stay there for a little while so that he could talk to me because otherwise I wasn't listening. And so it works patience. But whenever we let patience have its perfect work, that helps us that we may become perfect. So the patience is part of our perfecting process. And every single temptation that the enemy throws your way is part of your perfecting process. That we may be complete, lacking nothing. 1 Peter 5 and 10 says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, which means establish in our vernacular, strengthen and settle you. So Peter even told the people he was writing to, maybe you're going to have to suffer a little while. Maybe it's not going to be just an easy road. But after that, God is going to take those struggles that you're going through and use them to make you perfect, to establish you, to settle you, to strengthen you. And so here again, the struggle is sometimes suffering in the perfecting process. Think of a piece of wood. If a piece of wood had feelings, how do you think it would feel whenever it's cut and sanded down and drilled and screwed together to make a table or a chair or whatever? Probably not good. And yet we tell God, make of me whatever you want of me. Well, that making process is sometimes a painful process. And it's not just in the New Testament that God lays all of this on us. Even in the Old Testament, God was expecting us to strive and push for more even before we were in the dispensation of grace. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 13, God is speaking and he says, Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. Wow. And understand that this is the same God in the Old Testament, before grace and mercy, before forgiveness. This is the same God that said David was a man after his own heart. And we know how flawed that David was. Yet whenever you go through the lineage of the Israelite kings, whenever it talks about David, it says David's heart was perfect with the Lord. Now, we know David sinned, and we know David messed up, and it caused a murder to happen, and, and took a man's wife and committed adultery, but still it said God, that his heart was perfect with the Lord, which means the process of perfection isn't ended with a mistake. 
You can make a mistake and God can forgive the mistake and God can move you past the mistake and still have you on the path of perfecting. And we could go on and on and on. In fact, in the King James Bible, there are 94 verses in the King James Version that contain the word perfect. And that's not even counted perfecting, perfected, perfection. That's just the word perfect. And if God says something that many times in the Bible, it's probably something to pay attention to because he's talking about it over and over and over. So now for the paradox, God tells us to be perfect, but we understand that we are not perfect. So how can we get perfect? It's not entirely up to us. We have a part to play, but we can only do it through him. So does that mean I'll never ever make another mistake once I get there, that I will be really and truly perfect? I can't tell you because I'm not there yet. So I don't know the answer to that question. In my mind, I believe that the process of perfection gets us closer and closer and closer to what God wants us to be. But the only time we will really and truly be absolutely perfect is whenever we step over onto the other side. Because there's no sin there and there's no temptation there. But here's the thing. Even if on this side of eternity I can never quite attain absolute perfection, how close could I get? How, how close could I really get? I, I have this, this thing in my spirit that God put in my spirit whenever I was a teenager. And it was just this thought because God speaks to me in, in a different way because my brain is different. And, and sometimes it just puts random things together and we go off in black holes and all that other stuff. We're not going there today, so don't worry. But I was here and I was, I was right there. I was up here at the church one day and I was praying. And I was walking back and forth in front of that pew and between the altar right there. And I had this thought, you know, Adam walked in the cool of the day with the Lord. Physically got to walk with God himself every day. And we know that we can't do that right now because God is a spirit and he's not physically here on this earth. We won't be able to do what Adam did until we get to the other side. But how close could we get? If we were to take everything, literally everything else and set it aside. Like if we were to take our phones and our entertainment and everything that is not part of God, if we were to be able to set all of that aside every minute of every day, how close could we get to what Adam had here on this earth? And in the same way, even though we may not be able to attain absolute perfection, how close could we get to being perfect before the Lord? So, I can't get there on my own. And he also won't just shove me into perfection because he's a perfect gentleman. So I have a part to play in the process of perfection. I have work to do because I know where my faults and failures are. I know the things that I should avoid. So I've got to be part of the perfecting process and watch for the things that trip me up. I need faith. 
me to him and him to me in order to not make as many mistakes. And then part two, the more complete part. While fewer mistakes is my thing to work on, that process is individual because the Lord doesn't necessarily tell you to come to me and point out my mistakes. Now, he may tell Brother Bruce to come to me and point out my mistakes because that's my daddy. And he can do that even if I don't like it. He has license to do that because that's my father. But if the Lord comes through Terry Monroe to tell me what my mistakes are, I, I think I'm going to have to ask for some clarification from the Lord. That's just our nature. We don't want anybody else pointing out our mistakes. You know, because we, we get defensive and it gets personal. So the fewer mistakes part is individual. God works on that with us. But the more complete part is collective. Because God's not going to make me an entire body of Christ by myself. In my most perfect state, I will still only be a part of the body of Christ. Me being altogether complete is not part of his plan. Us being altogether complete is. But what he will do with me is he will cut and prune and shave and sand off my rough spots so that I fit better into my place in the body and in the kingdom. And that not only requires effort on my part in working on my relationship with him and working on my own life, but the more complete part of the process adds an additional requirement. I've got to work on my relationship with you because we are the body. And each part of the body doesn't exist in its own little enclosed island where we all are little segments like in a honeycomb and we don't touch each other. Every part of the body touches every other part of the body. We're all connected. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we, not I, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. So whenever there's a calamity, whenever things are going on in Ukraine, whenever things are going on politically in the United States, whenever you've been going through a hard situation at work or at home or with your health, and you walk into this place and all of a sudden it's like all of the struggles and the fears and the frustrations either get muted or get left at the door. And you walk in this place and you feel, that's verse 1. Being justified by faith, we have peace through God. Verse 2, by whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We're not supposed to be here. It's only by grace that we are standing. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so. In other words, and not only peace and joy and faith and hope, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation, struggle, problems, works, patience. And he said, we, not I, we. Problems with all of us that affect the whole body. They work patience, and patience works experience, and experience works hope, 
And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Not just me, not just you, but it's given unto us. So the things that we go through individually, our personal struggles, and the things that we go through collectively, deaths in the family whenever we all come together, serious illness whenever we pray and we send a prayer cloth or we go to the hospital and we pray, calamities and situations where we can bind together and hold each other up, these things all build all of us up whenever we work through them together. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, we get all of our good from him through the knowledge of him that called us, not me, us, to glory and virtue, whereby we are given, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. If you're not Jewish, you're not supposed to be here as far as the original Jews were concerned. But Jesus said, no, you know what? This is not going to only be for the Jews. It's going to also be for the Gentiles, which is everybody that's not Jewish. And so by those promises, we are made partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith that you've already been given. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that God gives to every man the measure of faith. So you've already got faith. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. Read, show thyself approved unto God, and to knowledge temperance and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity, which is agape love. For if these things be in you, and that you is a collective you, not individual, but you as a body, and abound, they make you that you shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Give diligence to. It takes me paying attention to what's going on in my life and studying and examining my thoughts, my actions, and my words against the Word of God and saying, am I measuring up to this book? John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also want love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So, we've got to work on our relationships with each other. It is only when we are in unity and when we are pulling together that we move forward in God's plan for our church and for the church as a whole. So not only 
do I need you, which we learned last week, I need to constantly be working on my relationship with each and every one of you. Because it's easy for us as humans to kind of get complacent and comfortable in our relationships. I know who you are. I come in, shake your hand, hug your neck. Hey, how are you doing? We're all good. But I need to always be praying for God to open my eyes every time I'm in the same room with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Who does God want me to encourage today? Who does God want me to lift up today? Has something some, that someone did or someone said gotten on my nerves? Maybe, because we're human. Maybe God is using that to get me to examine my motivations and the way that I think through things. Maybe God is trying to get my attention so that I can look at things from a different perspective. Not so that I can be mad and upset that so-and-so did such-and-such, but maybe God's trying to poke at my attention because that's the only way he can get through to me and say, hey, 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 you're looking at this wrong. But they, they, no, no, not but they, but you. But how are you thinking about that? Where do, where do you think they came from? Why do you think they did that or said that? What do you think is going on in their lives that may have led them to the point that they did that? Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore that one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If I can see a fault and a mistake, at the very least, it is my responsibility to pray for the restoration of that individual. I am called to help restore them in a spirit of meekness, which is not, hey, guess what? You messed up. There's no meekness in that. And if God moves on me to speak to them and say, hey, I, I just... I'm worried about you. I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. Understand that we've got to restore them in the spirit of meekness like the word of God said. So if I see something, I'm responsible for praying for it. And then I hope for the same thing if somebody sees a fault in me that they will be praying for me because the body depends on each other. However, knowing that none of us are perfect yet, We've got to realize that as, just as I have faults, so does the person sitting next to me and in front of me and behind me. Many times we feel like the faults and the failings that we have are unique to us, and that causes us shame. How could I be so weak and so foolish? What will others think if they know that this is an area in which I have a failing? And the thinking along those lines is just what causes us to keep each other at arm's length whenever we are struggling. However, our problems are much more common amongst us than we, the enemy would want us to think. It was by God's design that we lean on each other for strength. And that doesn't mean you have to air your dirty laundry to everyone, but it does give you permission to let others know this is where I struggle. This is where I need prayer. James chapter 5, starting in verse 13, says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any married? 
Things are going great for you. Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith, of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed any sins, they shall be forgiven him. Verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We use that last line of that verse a whole lot, but the line immediately preceding it is confess your faults one to another because it's impossible for you to be strong all by yourself. God didn't design you that way. And we don't have time to go back into the discussion of the body of Christ from last week, but let me paint you a picture. Think of a paintbrush. And I meant to get one and bring it with me, and I forgot. But a paintbrush, if you've ever seen one before, it has many, many little bristles. The little individual hairs are called bristles. And whenever you dip the brush into the paint, each bristle gets covered with paint and is ready to apply that to another surface. But what if you had an old paintbrush and it only had one bristle? How long would it take you to paint this back wall with one bristle? Or what if it had several, but they were not together? And there was one here, and you, you skip an inch, and then there's a couple, and then you skip another inch, and there are two or three more. What would that brush stroke look like whenever you tried to paint it across the wall? It would look messy. It would look messed up. Each one of those bristles on their own creates an imperfect stroke of paint, but you put all of them together and the job can be accomplished. For the purpose of God to be fulfilled, we need a, a full brush and for all of us to be going in the same direction. Not my direction, not your direction, his direction. Because if you've ever had an old paintbrush, that had some paint left on it and it kind of got dry and crusty and you started to try and paint with it thinking I'll just put it in the paint and that'll get it kind of wet but you've still got some bristles that are pointing off the wrong way if you're trying to do a good precision job it's going to be impossible until you get those bristles sticking off to the side under control and get them pointing back in the same direction and we're the same way if we're pointing off in the wrong direction we're not going to be allowing the body to do its work. But the fact that somebody is pointing off in the wrong direction is not licensed to say, oh, look at them. I am responsible for helping pull them back into the right direction. Their problems are my problems. My problems are your problems because we're all pulling in the same direction together. We're going to end this morning with this scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us 
to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's not talking about heaven. That's talking about right now. God taking all of us that are imperfect, that are broken, that are messed up, and has raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places. So in, in heavenly places, well, what does it feel like in here right now? Doesn't this feel like a little bit of heaven on earth? Whenever we're all in the middle of praise and worship and the Spirit is flowing and we realize that but for the grace of God, I wouldn't even be here. That verse applies to me and it applies to you. We are here in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All of us together. And I can't accomplish my purpose without you. You can't accomplish your purpose without me. We are a body together. And it takes every single one of us pulling in the same direction. And that's why unity is so important. Because there can't be an us if there's not unity. It just doesn't work. And so the enemy wants to come in and divide and split and bring division and then he can attack the body piece by piece instead of having to face the whole thing. It's the same exact strategy that Vladimir Putin is using against Ukraine. He came in and took Crimea. He got two more separatist regions to say, we don't want to be part of Ukraine. It's division. You know, over and over and over in U.S. history, united we stand, divided we fall. That principle comes from the Word of God. Understand that unity, praying for unity in the body and actively working on making sure that I am in unity if there's anything in me that's beating against somebody else's personality type, I've got to work on my relationship with you. If you would stand with me this morning. Mr. Mark Newton... God rest his soul. He was the assessor of Grant Parish two assessors back. So not my immediate predecessor, but the one before that. And he was the one that hired me. And he told me whenever I came into the office, he said, I want you to remember this that I'm about to tell you because it's important. He said, yes, sir. He said, some people can't hold their spoon right. Excuse me? He said, some people can't hold their spoon right. Nothing way wrong with the way that they eat, but just the way they hold their spoon annoys me. He said, they're just not holding their spoon right. He said, people are going to be that way whenever people come in, the general public comes in. There may be nothing wrong with the question they're asking, but just the way they ask it, you're going to think, now they, they know better than to say it that way. They know better than to act like that. He said, and they might. But then again, they might not have ever thought of it in that context. And you remember that that person that comes in, they have a question. And to them, whatever problem they have, it's a real problem. And at the end of the day, they're a Grant Parish citizen. You're a Grant Parish citizen. We're all Grant Parish citizens, and we're the public servants. 
So whatever problem they have, it doesn't matter if they don't hold their spoon right for you. Some people just won't. There will be some people whose personalities will not mesh with you at all, ever. And that's okay. You're still responsible for doing whatever you can to help that person. And that was just in the context of serving the general public. How much more should I look at every person I come in contact with with the grace and mercy that God gave to me in not wanting me to be perfect before he forgave me? He didn't require perfection of me before he forgave me of my sins. And in fact, if I couldn't call out to him out of the midst of my sin, I wouldn't even be here because from a child, I was a sinner. Man is a few days and full of trouble. And so grace and mercy had to be applied to me before I could even take my first step in my relationship with God. So how much more should I look through the eyes of grace and mercy at every single person in this room? Everyone who is my brother and my sister. Last week, we ended with the song, You're My Brother, You're My Sister, because we talked about needing each other. But God has a purpose for his church. He has a purpose that is bigger than just us standing together and locking arms. He wants the world saved. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's part of our job is to let other people know that. And that's a war because the enemy does not want other people to know that there is hope and there is forgiveness. So we together are an army. And so this song we're about to sing says we are an army. And so our purpose is the purpose of God. Our work is the work of God. And that work and that purpose can't be accomplished unless we do this all together.